right, if you would please open your Bibles to that passage that Eddie read just a moment of moment ago, Acts chapter four. Actually, that's where uh, our main reading is going to be. I'll, I'll have you turn back first to Acts chapter two. We read of it just a moment ago in Acts chapter four. We sang of it when we were singing in Christ alone that Jesus Christ by his resurrection, has been vindicated and has been shown to be the cornerstone. The cornerstone. The cornerstone is, particularly in the days gone by, the most important stone in the structure. Everything is made to fit. Everything is made square and the cornerstone really uh, is the, the stone that determines the form of the building and the function of the building. Everything must fit to the cornerstone. So Jesus Christ is the cornerstone in the plans and the purposes of God. Everything must be made and everyone who will be in his kingdom must be made to fit to Jesus Christ. That's what I want to declare to you this morning. The glory of Jesus Christ in his resurrection. Let's begin with prayer. And um, then the way that I want to begin actually is reasons that I won't be a Christian. You say, Brother Mike, you're not a Christian. No, I'm saying these are bad reasons. For these reasons, I won't be a Christian. And then I want to show you the reasons why I am, why... We must all be, and I hope that your mind is convinced and your heart is captivated by the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your son. It is no, there is no greater blessing, there is no greater gift than to know Christ, to belong to you through Jesus. Father, I pray that it would be the case for everyone here that each one may say with Holy Spirit-given confidence, I belong to Christ. I am eternally His. I pray, Father, that You would, by Your Spirit, freely work in our hearts today. Draw each one closer to You. And do it, Father, not for our name, but for Your name. Not for our glory, but for your glory alone. Please give to us your spirit that we may see and understand the things of God in Christ your Son. In his name we pray. Amen. The reasons why I won't be a Christian. I won't be a Christian just because I find Christianity to be a comfortable fit for me personally. I'm not going to be a Christian because I happen to find Christianity convenient, which I don't, but if I did, that's not why I would want to be a Christian. I won't be a a Christian because I find Christianity is the current thing in my neck of the woods. It's the cultural norm for where I happen to live. I won't be a Christian because... I find that Christianity, more than any other philosophical system or set of ideas or truth propositions, caters to my wants. 
And I won't be a Christian because I find that it coaches me well through life. I want to be a Christian because I find Christianity, I find Jesus Christ Himself personally convincing and captivating. He convinces my mind and He captivates my heart. I don't want to be a Christian because so many others are in. I want to be a Christian because Jesus Christ Himself pulls me in. Nothing less than this is going to do. Many people are convinced of the historical truth claims of Christianity and of the doctrinal statements of Christianity who aren't captivated by Christ, who don't entrust themselves to Jesus, who don't treasure Jesus above all. And then there are many others also, and I want to break down these two things in a moment, but there are also many others who find Christianity in, in some form to be personally captivating, but who aren't convinced about Jesus by the claims and the revelation of God's Word, the Bible. And neither one of these people, you might say the one group is the mind people and the others are the heart people, neither one is truly a Christian according to the Word of God. The Bible says that those whose minds are convinced by the historic claims of Christianity or even its doctrinal teachings, but whose hearts aren't one, are not right with God. For as it says in James chapter 2, even the demons believe. Even the demons believe that the historical claims. Even the demons believe the doctrinal teachings such as that there is one God, that God is one. But obviously they have not entrusted themselves to Jesus. Obviously they don't treasure Him. And it's very clear that Jesus has not delivered them in any way. Further, the Bible says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. So what is that individual missing who has this mental grasp, strong maybe, strong mental grasp of Christianity? What is their problem? What are they missing? Their hearts don't cling to Christ. Their hearts don't cling to Him. Their hearts are not one to Jesus to trust in Him for all their salvation. And their hearts are not one to treasure Jesus above all things. So the person who is only convinced with some kind of intellectual assent is not a true Christian. And then there are also some who who are captivated by Jesus, but who aren't convinced by the revelation of Him in God's Word. They're captivated by perhaps the emotional lift that they receive from Christianity or the personal gain or the spiritual experience that they love that has proven true for them personally. But they're not convinced by the claims about Jesus from the Word of God. And you might say, well, that means they're They're really not captivated by Christ. And that would be true, but they certainly think that they are. That their hearts have been won to Jesus. 
even though that's actually not the case because they don't know him. About his people in the Old Testament, the Lord said, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. About religiously fervent Israel in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul said this, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, for Israel, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. In a sense, they have this passion. In a way, they are captivated. But he says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So these people, this group, worships in spirit, but not in truth. They worship, but they don't know who it is that they worship. And so I would submit to you, and I pray humbly, that neither one of these are true Christians. Neither has received Jesus for who He is. Who is He? Who is this man Jesus? This is, this is the question of history since His coming. Who is this Jesus of Nazareth? Let me give you six things. He is God's anointed one. He is Lord of all. He is the mediator between God and man. He is the Savior of all who believe. He is the judge of earth and heaven. And He is the King whose kingdom is all-consuming and everlasting. The one and only. This is who Jesus is. So, those whose minds are convinced by the Bible's claims about Him and whose hearts are captivated by His glory, they are the true Christians. They are the ones who trust Jesus and who treasure Him above all. Why should you believe? Why should you trust in Christ and treasure Him above all? Let me give you six things. Because from eternity... He is true God from true God by whom all things were created and for whom all things exist. You should trust in Christ and treasure Him above all the world because He, though God and still God, became a man and came to us. You should trust in Jesus and you should treasure Him above everything because He lived a sinless life in obedience to God, His Father by the Spirit, though He was tempted in every way that we are. You should trust in Jesus and you should treasure Him above all because though He was sinless and innocent, He laid down His life to be held guilty for our sin, was punished and condemned with the justice that we were due, and in our place He died. Because though He was dead, He took His life back and God has made Him Lord over all. And you should trust in Jesus yourself and you should treasure Him above all because He welcomes sinners into His salvation. He does not give it on the condition that we perform works of goodness and righteousness, but His salvation is a free gift of His love, His grace and His mercy. That was all introduction. 
let's get into some of these historic claims. And what I, what I would like to do is look at very briefly in a way from one angle, the experience of the disciples, particularly Peter and John, as we see in their teaching, the performing of this miracle, their arrest and their defense of Jesus, how they went from cowardice to great courage because their minds had been convinced and because their hearts were captivated by what they saw in Jesus Christ. So after Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem and he was buried in the garden tomb, on the third day of his death, you know, certain women, disciples of Jesus, went to the tomb intending to anoint his body, to do Jesus' honor. Instead of finding what they expected to find, they found that the stone had been rolled away from this this grave. And the tomb was in fact empty. And there was an angel there who testified to these women, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen as he said. And then that day, it was the first day of the week, Jesus appeared to the women. Then he appeared to the eleven, the disciples, male disciples. And he spoke with them. And he ate with them. And he spent further another 40 days with his disciples, teaching them about the kingdom of God. And then at the appointed time and place, Jesus ascended back to heaven to be seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, victorious, all authority in heaven and on earth belonging to him. And then, just a few short days after his ascension, Jesus gave to the, whole, the, to the disciples what he had promised he would give, the Holy Spirit from the Father to indwell them for all time. Once the disciples had received the Holy Spirit, they continued the mission by the Spirit that Jesus had begun, proclaiming the good news of God and commanding repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. What was the heart of their witness? What was at the heart of their proclamation as this ministry had begun? It was the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now look in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 24 and 32 to 33. The day that the apostles received the Holy Spirit, Peter stood up and he preached to those gathered in Jerusalem. He said, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs, that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Look down at verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, 
He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Not long after this, if you glance over to chapter 3, Peter and John went to the temple at the hour of prayer. And outside the temple, they found this man who was there regularly, a lame man who spent his days at one of the gates begging for help. He looked at Peter and John as they came and he asked them for help. And this was Peter's reply in verse 6. Peter replied, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he did. This miracle immediately led to two further opportunities to bear witness to Jesus. First of all, in the temple, because there were great crowds of people there on a regular basis who who saw this man day by day, lame, outside one of the gates, begging for help. Now they are astonished to see the same man, it says, walking and leaping and praising God. And so they're astonished and they rush to the scene and uh, Peter has this opportunity to preach to them. The second opportunity is going to come on the following day after Peter and John have been arrested. Look at verses 12 to 15 of chapter 3. Here's Peter preaching right after the performing of this miracle by the power of the Spirit. He says, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this... We are witnesses. And at these words, many, many people on that day, in fact, hundreds and even thousands of people, believed in Jesus Christ. Now, I'd like to, I'd like to do a little recap of something. We're going to step back. We're going to rewind a couple of months before we move on to Peter's next message. You see, it was only a couple months earlier that Jesus himself had entered into the city of Jerusalem at long last. Do you remember this? This is what, this is the moment that the disciples of Jesus, not only the twelve, but great, great crowds of them, this was the moment that the people were waiting for. His entrance into the capital city. They were believing, surely now Jesus will take the throne. Surely he will now deliver us from our enemies. And so they welcome him into the city. Jesus, immediately upon his entrance, proceeded to the temple. And there he rid Israel's holy place of the marketplace of thieves that had come to dominate and defile the temple of the living God. The religious authorities who had set up this marketplace system then accosted Jesus, demanding to know by what authority he had the right to do these things. Who did he think he was? They said, Luke 20, verse 2, 
Tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. Jesus did not ever really give his opponents the information that they asked of him. Ever. So what Jesus did in reply, what he said was, um, he answered their question with a question, proceeded then to tell a story, and then finally, his climactic word was this from the Psalms. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Luke 20, verse 17. It was a quote from the Psalms written about a thousand years before. And it means this, basically. Their act of rejection will be to his triumph. His enemies will smear the ground with his blood, but it will be to his everlasting glory. The stone, that is Jesus, rejected by the builders, the religious establishment, has become the cornerstone. That is, to him, all of the purposes and plans of God fit. All of God's plan of salvation fits to Jesus. He is the cornerstone. Now what I want you to see is what happens with Peter and John is after they perform this miracle and proclaim in Jesus the resurrection from, from the dead, the and remember all of this happens in the temple, the religious authorities, just as they were with Jesus, are now with the disciples very aggravated. Very aggravated. And so they arrest Peter and John. And what's interesting, fascinating, is that the same question that they put to Jesus about two months earlier, they now put to Peter and John. In other words, they say, where do you get off? Who do you think you are? By what authority do you do these things? The quote is uh, in Acts 4, verse 7, by what power or by what name did you do this? Same question, slightly different words, that they had put to Jesus just a couple months earlier. So the question they put to Peter and John is the same. And as we're going to see in a moment, the answer that Peter and John give is the same as the Lord Jesus. So they say, by what power or by what name did you do this? The Bible says that they're very agitated. And in chapter 4, verse 13, it also says after they, Peter and John give their defense, their witness, the, these are the Sanhedrin. They're greatly astonished too. Why are they astonished at Peter and John? They're astonished for one thing because Peter and John, the Bible says, they, they recognize that Peter and John are just common men. But the statement that they give is so bold. It's like, it's like they have the boldness of a world class authority on a particular matter without any of the schooling. And so it doesn't connect. It doesn't fit. And it just throws the Sanhedrin for this loop. But what floors them is that uneducated Peter and John are being so bold about a man who is dead. 
isn't he? They had crucified him. And they had crucified him with the working assumption that if you cut off the head, in this case Jesus, then the body, in this case the disciples, is going to die too. I mean, they might run around for a little while, all crazy-like, like a chicken with its head cut off, but eventually you can count on it. The thing is going to fall over, give its last twitch, and be obviously dead. And they, they, they had seen this before with... Actually, they counted on this working with the disciples because on the night that Jesus was arrested, even before Jesus was dead, it was like the body had died. Because what did his followers do on the night he was seized? They ran. Every which way. And they even denied to know Him. But now, something has changed. What happened between then and now? What changed in the meantime? Here they were just a couple months removed from Jesus' crucifixion and not only was the Jesus problem, still a problem, but there was more passion and there was more conviction around Jesus than ever before. And that's why they are so astonished that Peter and John, being common men and uneducated, were so bold for a man that they were sure was rotting in the grave. And so again, The very same question that they put to Jesus two months earlier, they put to the disciples. They said, what is the source of your authority? Let's look at verses 8 to 10. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the elders, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. And then, here is Peter's definitive answer. It's the same answer that Jesus gave two months earlier to the same question. Peter says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And is there any, is there any wonder still about what this means? That Jesus is the cornerstone? Is there any question about what the implications are for mankind that Jesus is the cornerstone, Peter answers in verse 12. Please look there. He says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What explains the change in these men who go from such cowardice that they would run every which way when Jesus was arrested, to now standing with so much courage. Jesus has risen from the dead. 
and by the Spirit of God, their minds are convinced and their hearts are captivated by the risen Christ. Their minds are convinced and their hearts are captivated. They had seen the body of Jesus dead. All of the life crucified out of it. And on the third day of His death, they saw that body alive again. He came to them. He spoke to them. They touched Him and they ate with Him. And they were not the only ones. 500 plus of Jesus' followers were with Him after His resurrection in the weeks to come. And the disciples were convinced and the disciples were captivated because Jesus' resurrection means that every claim He made and every revelation and all of His ministry has been vindicated. He is true God from true God. And all that's from Jesus is all of God. Salvation is in Him. Jesus Christ truly is the cornerstone. It's like you could think of it this way. Everything that was prior to Jesus before Him was simply preparing the ground to lay the cornerstone. And everything after Jesus builds on Him. All of the plans and the purposes of God, salvation and God's kingdom fit to Jesus and are built in Him. And if you and I are to be reconciled to the one true God, we also must be made to fit to Christ. And we are not made to fit to the cornerstone like stones in a building by our righteousness, but by the grace and the mercy of God. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy. He saves us. What does it mean that Jesus is the cornerstone? To see God, you must fix your eyes on Jesus. To hear God, you must tune your ears to Jesus. To know God, you must learn Jesus. To honor God, you must glorify Jesus. To submit to God. You must surrender to Jesus. And to be alive in God, you must receive Jesus. This is what it means that Jesus is the cornerstone. And He is declared to be by His resurrection from the dead. There is nothing from God apart from Jesus. But because of Him, we could not have more. There is nothing from God apart from Jesus, but because of Him, we could not have more. Do you believe this? I, I pray that there is an amen just booming in your heart because we don't say it out loud very often. He was and is, and is to come. He was dead, and behold, He is alive forevermore. Believe in Christ. Receive Him as your Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Father, 
thank you. I praise you for the revelation that you have given to us in history, in the testimony of your book, the Bible, concerning Jesus. Thank you, Father, for doing what we could not do in opening our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, to see him truly for who he is, to behold him, to recognize that he is all in all. He is true God from true God. He is the cornerstone. There is no other. It's in in His righteousness that we stand before You. It's in His name that we approach You. It's in Him that we're accepted. He is all of our hope, all of our joy, all of our life. It's Jesus. Father, often You know you know better than I, you know better than any of us how how deeply we struggle and how dim our sight is of Him. Oh God, would You please further open our eyes and, and make us to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. He is Your shining glory. Make us to see Him. I pray that we would behold Him. I pray that we would each and every one of us believe in Him. And I pray, Father, that we would become like Him, being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This is Your work. I pray that You would accomplish it in us by Your mercy and Your grace. I thank You, Father, for those who have gathered here today. I pray that You would pour out Your blessing in Christ on them, each and every one. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.